Um, I asked Ralph to, to if he could include um, or bring in Be Still and Know, because I think it's a lovely song. But um, <clears throat> I, for a bulk of my life, even when I was young, I've sort of fiddled around making jewellery um, off and on through my life with using mainly silver and gold. And it's rather lovely. And I, since I've retired, I've built up what I've been doing and, and I now, now make a lot of crosses and things which I sell online. But recently I introduced a new range which doesn't require a lot of skill but actually has, a, has some Bible sayings on because the, the, it's an overtly Christian site that I have. And Be Still and Know is one that I introduced um, about a month ago. And the number of people that have put, clicked, they like it, they like it, they like it. And I, I see it, although I've not sold one yet, you know, there is a lot of people all over who actually relate to that. Um, and it's, it's remained in my mind as an earworm, really, for, for the last several weeks. But, um, and I thought, that's what I'll talk about. But the Lord obviously didn't want me to talk about this morning because it was very, very difficult to work on. Um, and he told me something else. So I'm going to speak about something quite different. Um, we haven't had a reading up. Um, and it is... Have we got the reading, um, John? Luke 16, 1 to 13. I was hoping that it, somebody would be able to read it before I spoke. But, um, but we will read it through because it's a... It's a um, interesting one. Um, shall I read it then? Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man <coughs> whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what, it, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager, my manager anymore or any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I, I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dis dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in the dealing with their own kind than, they are, than are the people of the, of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with future with, with, with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, 
for he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, this is a very strange parable. <laughs> and in fact, it's quite hard to understand, really. Um, you know, you've got the unfaithful manager and he's about to be relieved of his job and his employer commends him and praises him um, uh, for stealing from him. <coughs> to better understand this parable, we need to look at the context to which it was presented. The parable of the shrewd manager is, a f is the fourth story given in a series that begins with Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to, to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, The man receives sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees and scribes were always very upset with Jesus because they were amazed at his knowledge of God and, and also the scriptures. So they used the usual trick of trying to devalue him, really. That was the only way they could devalue his reputation. And Jesus' reputation at that time was very solid. So they attacked him through his association. If a man hangs around with sinners, well then obviously he has something co in common with them. So he must be a sinner. So Jesus responds to them by these, telling these four parables. <coughs> the first is the parable of the lost sheep. And the parable tells us that every person, every single soul is precious to God and is, worthy, is worth a great effort to save. The Pharisees and scribes had the wrong viewpoint. They just saw men and women sinned. But Jesus saw that they needed to be saved. So we go to the second story, the parable of the lost coin. With this parable, Jesus reminds us that we will put a lot of effort into something that we deem to be valuable. And it was only, and this coin this lady lost was only a very low value coin. And even though she had, she had nine other coins, she went, made a very thorough search for this other one and then was overjoyed to announce to everyone that she found it and that she had great fortune in finding it. So if people get excited about finding lost pieces of silver, how much more will God be excited over the recovery of a lost soul? And the third story is the famous parable of the prodigal son. Same sort of thing. In this story, we learn God wants us back even though we turn against him. God is able to forgive and forget all past wrongs, which we know, and when a, when a sinner returns to him, the sinners seeking out Jesus were represented by the lost son. And the Pharisees and scribes were represented by the older son, who was caught up in his own righteousness, to see the value of, the, of, of another person's return. And then we come to the fourth story, and this is probably the most difficult one, which is the parable of the shrewd manager. And the problem with understanding this parable is, as I struggled with all the way through and I have to say that is that Jesus actually commends this unrighteous man in this parable Richard the rich man was probably a typical I would say absentee landlord and he entrusted the operations of his business to this manager 
The person who was the manager was probably well-trained and he was also given, because of that, a lot of authority over the rich man's affairs. This may well, of course, involve significant financial matters, renting out of land, which the, the, the farmer may have had, a lot of land, making loans against harvest, future harvests, and he probably, most certainly, kept the uh, master's financial accounts. So this particular problem, this particular manager, though, had a real problem. He was not honest. And he was squandering his master's possessions for his own pleasures. The rich man was beginning to hear rumours, though, about this manager. And he was also beginning to get a bit suspicious of his conduct. So he asked him to account for himself and told him that his employment was going to be finished. So this manager had to make a final account to his boss of the management conduct of his management conduct and that was it he was finished. And of course this reminds us that when we are before Christ at the end we've got to do the same. We've got to stand there and um, make an account really of, of how we performed. Um, so that, you know, that God will bless us. So the manager, obviously, he's in a quandary over this. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't think he's physically able to do any um, manual labour. And, and he's actually got far more pride to be a beggar. So the manager thinks about this and he comes up with this cunning plan. He decides to make friends with his master's debtors. So they also probably people of means, might be happy to receive him into their homes. He thought that if he was able to discount the amounts owed to the master, it would put the debtors under obligation to him. So the first debtor probably actually owed the rich man about half of his bill, probably about 400 gallons worth of olive oil. The rest charge was possibly a very hefty commission that the manager was intending to receive. And the second debtor owed were these two I mentioned. I mean, we don't know how many there were. There were probably a lot. The second debtor owed about a thousand bushels of wheat, which at the time was about eight to nine and a half years wage, that uh, year's wage. So it's a lot, a lot of wheat. Um, and the bill was reduced to a little over 800 bushels of wheat. Again, this was a significant saving for the debtor. But the thing is, was he giving away what really belonged to his master, or was he foregoing the interest payments that he'd, really, that he'd, he'd stuck on himself? Or was he foregoing interest payments his master did not have any right to charge? Originally, the manager may have overcharged the debtors, which was commonly a way of getting round the Mosaic law at the time of prohibiting taking interest from fellow Jews. Most people seem to think that the manager was eliminating his commission. But there are some people, because there's a lot of questions about this and a lot of people have discussed it. Um, but some feel that, there's, that he was just being downright dishonest and that was it and he was cheating his master even more. So this was the trick that would have endeared him to his master's debtors. 
and who would have shown appreciation by receiving him into their homes after the job was done. And then we get to verse 8 and we read this startling passage. The master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light, people of God. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The shrewd manager was commended not for his honesty, but for his shrewdness. It doesn't mean that, that the unjust manager was right, but he was shrewd on a worldly level in making use of God's provision to gain friends. This helped both his present personal problems, but also potentially his future. And this gave a rather stark contrast to actually what is the case. The children of this world appear to be wiser than the children of God. The children of this world would be also those that are unsaved. And the children of God will be those who are saved. So many people who are shrewd in business dealings do it in order to further themselves. But how many Christians who might be shrewd in their finances for their own worldly pleasure use that shrewdness in business to invest in heavenly dividends? In verse 9, our Lord gives us three principles that this par parable would teach. These are things which we should learn for our own lives. God's people should be alert to make use of what God has given them, to gain friends by helping those in need, who in the future will show their gratitude when they welcome their benefactors into heaven. In this way, worldly God's provision of in this way, worldly God's provision of worldly wealth may be wisely used to gain eternal benefit. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is teaching that we can buy our way into heaven, because that we know is not the case. Um, you know, there are at least three examples where they say this clearly indicates this isn't the case. John 14, tell us that he is the way, tells us that he is the way, the truth and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. John 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. And Ephesians, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not by works, so no one can boast. So we cannot buy our way into heaven. God entrusts us with a great deal while we're here. For being faithful, it's not related to the amount that God entrusts us with, but the character of the person who uses it. Now we have to ask a question, how can we make friends with money that will mean something in the everlasting habitations of heaven? In Jesus' day, it was probably perhaps giving the alms to the poor. Oh, it made me think of moving the, the, the man from the, the gate, the blind. Was he deaf, wasn't he? Or deaf and blind. But they, they give alms. They were, they were used to doing that. In our day... There are many more ways money can be invested that will bring reward in heaven. 
first thing that comes to mind is the missions. I mean, we, we can earn money so that we can give money to give the cause of bringing Christ to the people of the world. So you think that, you do that, and you imagine the joy of heavenly reunion someday when you're welcomed by the missionary who was on the mission field with your help and by the people who had been brought to the Lord because of you. So this is a nice thing to think of. Another way of investing is giving outreach efforts of our own church. Another way of giving is giving to disaster funds. I think this is an important thing for people in need, both Christian and non-Christian. Imagine Christians again thinking about that in heaven, receiving you thankful, uh, receiving you thankful that you had, had invested in them because they, you helped them when they had real need. In Luke 16, we read, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. The context is concerning money, but this statement is true for everything we do. If we are faithful in little issues, we are faithful in big issues. If we are unrighteous in little issues, we will be unrighteous in big things. The person who is faithful in a small job at work or in the church would be faithful if you gave him her big job, a big job to do. The person who is unfaithful in a small job or work at a church will be unfaithful in a big one. The person who is faithful to the Lord in the way they treat little issues will be faithful in big issues, such as honesty. The person who is unfaithful, of course, in the same situation will be unfaithful in big issues. So this affects the honesty in a much greater way. So if you've, been, if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust the, true rich, trust the true riches? Money and things money, money and things money can buy won't go with you to heaven. Faithful use of it, however, will lead you to receive true riches, the riches that do not pass away. It may be that often we are not blessed with other responsibilities for the Lord because we have not been faithful in using our money wisely. In Matthew 6, we read, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's well known. That In Ephesians, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his, own, with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. So we come back to this sharing, sharing, sharing with those in need. And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, we see this in Luke 16, who will give you property of your own? This is God's world, and everything in it he is, is his. Anything we own is simply a gift from him. Therefore, how do we use the resources God has given us of the utmost importance? God will not give us true riches in heaven 
of our own if we've not been good stewards of what we have got here. If we've not looked after what God has given us here and all the gifts that we've received, then <coughs> we will not give us true riches. And finally, we've come to the core statement, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Actually, you will fervently love with either in love, either you will be fervently in love with either God or money. Jesus says you can't love both. You will love one and despise the other. Most people love money and don't even realise it. They are tied up with the things that money can buy. And if they don't have money, they dream and talk of things they would like to have if they had money. And here's a very good test that we could do to us all ourselves and think about it. If you listen to yourself, listen to what you think about and what you talk about. If you love money, you will think and talk about things that money can buy. If you love someone or some activity, you will talk about that. But if you love God, you will talk about him. If you love God, you will use your money as much as possible to further the kingdom of God. So shall we pray? Dear Lord, we can only praise and thank you for all the gifts you've given us throughout our lives here on earth, everything. We have not been good stewards of it, nor have we always recognised how we should be using our money for the furtherance of your kingdom. Please forgive us and make us more aware, more aware of the Holy Spirit when he prompts us. Make us ever more conscious of him. Open our ears and our eyes to the knees of the world. Please, Lord, help us to re-look at our stewardship of our possessions and bless our endeavours to use it better in the future to your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. But what I really wanted to do before we um, came to the table was to, there's something in the Anglican church that they do just before. What's that? Yeah. And um, that word peace, it, it's, it's, it's better actually if you don't say peace, but say shalom. Because Shalom means so much more. Um, shalom means health, wholeness, well-being, peace, blessing, even pros uh, prosperity. Jesus so desires us to be whole, having life. No, more than life. Having life in abundance. To be set free of infirmity, depression, anxiety, pain. 
He said, I have come that you may have life and have it with abundance. The word health is difficult to find in the Old Testament. Instead, look for the word strength. Like in Psalm 46, God is our strength. And you have the word for health. So speak to one another God's strength into the person. Command God's healing to take place as Jesus did and the disciples and men of women of the early church did, did because Jesus has given us that authority. And then, as it were, stand aside for God's Holy Spirit to flow and thank Jesus, praise him. We come with nothing. We have nothing of ourselves to give. We can only be there and open the door. I have prayed for folk and they, and as yet, seen no results. Healing. Maybe there is something of myself that I'm trying to bring, and that is no good. It has to be all of him. Angela told me to praise God in song over the person, so I apologize in advance if I do that. And yes, that is what Ephesians 5 verse 16 means, addressing one another in psalms, and hymns and songs from the Spirit. So spend a moment with the person with whom you are praying, sing to one another, speak God's blessings to one another, have confidence that God is just waiting for you to open the door for his healing power to flow. Say shalom to each other. Look at Isaiah 52 and 53. That's one of the scriptures that was burning in my heart. And therefore, we are receiving his healing as you take the bread. It is your inheritance, your divine right. When we take the wine, we are remembering that he took our sins on the cross and they were paid for. We are receiving his righteousness. It is your divine right. A little verse, Romans 3, verse 24. All of us are being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The Greek here literally means God is continuously seeing you righteous, continuously imputing righteousness to you. Continuously means before we fail, while we fail, after we fail. There is not a time that God is not continually making you righteous. Knowing this destroys the tendency in us to sin. It frees us. That is why perfect love casts out all our fears. God looks at his covenant, the finished work of Christ, and from the moment we first believe on Jesus, he is divinely obliged to impute righteousness into us. God imputed to Jesus all our sins. From the day we were born to the day we will see him, he was punished for all our sins. He took our place. And then God raised him from the dead without our sins. That means all our sins are put away. They are washed away by his blood. 
On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. My body, eat. This is my body broken for you. His body was broken that we would be whole. Thank you, Father. As we pass this around, feel free to just out aloud thank God for the bread, the broken body of Christ. Thank you, Father in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me he took our sins so that we would have his righteousness